This is the Inside the News podcast, investigating rape. This podcast is a collaboration between the Star Tribune and WCCO Radio. We look at how law enforcement in Minnesota handles the investigation and prosecution of rape and sexual assault. What you're about to hear is based on the reporting and audio recordings of Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and video journalist Renee Jones-Schneider. I'm your host, Jordana Green. In our last episode, we brought you the story of Amber Mansfield. We told you about how when Amber reported being raped to the police, investigators never did a background check on the suspect. Instead, they questioned her about her past. Had they done the check, they would have seen that the suspect was already a convicted rapist and registered level three sex offender. Police never pursued Amber's case. The suspect then attacked two more women. He's now in prison for those assaults. This next story is the case of Joanna Howe. Her experience is an example of what the Star Tribune's reporting revealed to be breakdowns in investigations of rape and sexual assault when alcohol is involved. It also highlights the problems with how consent laws are written in Minnesota. In October of 2016, uh, one of my good friends was getting married. And at this point, I was a single mom, a full-time student, and uh, had not had a child-free weekend in almost two years. So I knew that um, while I was uncomfortable parking in downtown Minneapolis and that I would probably also want to have a few drinks at the wedding, so for the first time ever, I used the Lyft service and got a ride to the wedding. I was really happy that the person who picked me up was a woman. It just made me feel more comfortable. I, I wanted to be responsible, and um, I feel like if you drink at all, you really shouldn't drive. So I wanted to make sure that I was being safe for me, for my son, and for anyone else out on the road. I didn't have a a date to the wedding, and I was feeling a little nervous. So before it even started, I had um, a glass of wine. And um, I'm not sure how many glasses I had before the ceremony itself, but by the time we had dinner at the reception, I had already had six glasses of wine and two pints of beer. And I just kept telling the bartenders, it's fine. I took a lift here. I have a safe drive ride home. I don't know for sure if I drank any more after dinner, but either way, at that point, I, I don't really have any memories. I don't, I don't remember how I got home. What I do know now is what I've pieced together since this night. When I woke up the morning after the wedding, I couldn't find my glasses or my cell phone, and I woke up naked. And I noticed my door was unlocked. Um, As a single mom, I would definitely not ever leave my door unlocked. And at that point, like, I still didn't know what had happened or if anything had happened, but it didn't feel right. 
So I didn't know how I got home, but I did have a few brief flashes of memory. One of those was of a large man in my apartment, in my bedroom, over me on my bed. When I didn't feel right, when I knew something was wrong and I remembered a man being in my apartment and I woke up naked, I figured that something had happened that I hadn't consented to. So uh, my friend came over and we used her phone and we called the police. And then the first thing the officer asked was if it was possible I had met someone at the wedding. And I said, I don't think so. And then he asked, is it possible that the Lyft driver knew you were intoxicated and that you needed help up to your apartment? Um, and then maybe you just got naked after? So he asked me if I slept naked, usually. Even if I needed help to my apartment, why I didn't need help into my bedroom. I felt very hurt and ashamed. I felt judged about how much I admitted to drinking. I'm not sure what he was thinking, but I didn't feel like the officer thought he was investigating a rape. I felt like the officer was blaming me and and thinking there wasn't any reason to be investigating this. So I, I think like once I said um, to the officer that, you know, that maybe I had invited him up, it was like, well, nothing happened then, like that you didn't want. That was the feeling I had. Like if you were able to invite him up or if you thought even thought that maybe you asked him to come up, then you must have consented. Joanna felt defeated and judged by her experience with the responding officer, but she wasn't ready to give up. She went to the hospital. There she was treated by a sexual assault nurse and endured a six hours long rape exam. An advocate with sexual offense services was on hand to help her through it. Joanna was hoping there would be enough physical evidence to help her piece together the truth about what happened the night before. Later, when she was able to check email, Joanna saw one from Lyft. It said she had left her phone in the driver's car from the previous night. That confirmed she did indeed take a Lyft home from the wedding. The email showed the driver's vehicle description and his picture. The person in the picture of the Lyft driver was the man that was in my apartment that night. The email from Lyft had the driver's contact information, so Joanna immediately called the Roseville police officer who took her report. He made arrangements to get her phone back. And I gave him the contact information that I had been given for the Lyft driver, and he contacted him and met him at Rosedale Mall got my phone and then he brought it back to my apartment. And when he came to my apartment with my phone, the officer said that he was, the Lyft driver had been very cooperative 
giving me my phone back. He had also, the officer had told me, if I had contacted Lyft about what happened, um, even just about remembering that the driver had been in my apartment that night, that it was really likely that um, the Lyft driver would just disappear and then they wouldn't be able to investigate. A few weeks later, she got a call from the sexual offense services advocate who was following up on her case. After speaking to Joanna, the advocate contacted the police department and found out an investigator had been assigned, but they were still waiting for results of the rape kit. About six months passed. Joanna says she didn't hear from the police department in that time. It was her advocate who got in touch again, this time with the results of the test. They'd come back inconclusive. The advocate then helped Joanna get in touch with the investigator working on her case, Detective Jamie Baker. I talked to the detective on the phone. She said that we could, one of my options was to try contacting him at the police station using my phone um, to see if he would admit to anything happening that night. I felt like it was a chance to get some justice. I decided I didn't really want to talk to him on the phone. I didn't want to hear his voice. Um, and Detective Baker had said it would be fine um, to just try to contact him by text. It had been six months at this point. We texted him pretending like, like I wanted to meet up with him again to see if he remembered me. He definitely remembered who I was and mentioned being in my apartment. He remembered giving my phone back to the police officers. He mentions in the text messages that I was drunk but coherent. If I was coherent, I would have locked my door after he left. I would not have left my phone in his vehicle. Those two things alone show me um, that I was not coherent. We continued texting him and he did admit to being in my room for an hour that night. Um, he admitted to sexual contact. I remember just feeling so disturbed to read what I had suspected but couldn't remember. I felt happy that now the police had some conclusive evidence so they I felt like something was actually going to be done and Detective Baker said that she still needed to, to interview the Lyft driver and needed to still run it by like the county attorney but she made it the detective made it seem because he had admitted to sexual contact that night that it was very likely he would be arrested and so Joanna went back to her life and waited to hear from police again this time she was hoping to hear the man who she believes raped her had been charged and was in police custody that call never came another six months went by before I got a letter from the assistant county attorney 
in Ramsey County saying that um, they were not going to prosecute the case. Just a letter saying it had some like official statutes on it um, talking about like how consent is defined in Minnesota laws and that there was just not enough evidence to prosecute. Star Tribune reporters Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, and Mary Jo Webster found this over and over during their investigation for the series Denied Justice. When alcohol is involved, the consent laws get a little gray. So let's say that a prosecutor wants to charge this case and call it rape. Um, There are basically two elements that, that that prosecutor has to prove. One, that there was not consent because the victim was, quote unquote, physically helpless. And there are a few things that fall under that. And two, that the perpetrator knew that the victim was physically helpless. So even if she's drunk and she's, if she's throwing up, if she's stumbling all over, that's not going to be charged as rape. Well, it depends. That could be. I mean, that could be evidence that the suspect should have known that she could not consent. But um, other defense attorneys will argue, well, if she was talking and walking, then she was not physically helpless. Therefore, she could consent. This right. is this is the sticking point here. Right. right. So, okay, if you want to get into the real nitty gritty of what physically helpless means, there are three prongs to physically helpless. One is that you have to be asleep or unconscious. That's pretty easy. The other is that the person has to, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, cannot communicate consent. Well, what does that mean in real life, right? And that's the question that I've asked so many prosecutors, and I get this answer of, I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure I know what that means in real life and how we translate that into specific situations. But the answer that I I get kind of boils down to that's why we have courtrooms and juries who are going to interpret that. So there's confusion even among prosecutors about the definition of physically helpless. Yes. When you're in an alcohol blackout, right, um, you may say something and have zero memory of it. Very true. In the morning and not not really be really um, be consenting. The alcohol blackout issue is. It's very gray and it's something that I'm told just about every state in the country wrestles with. But I see it also from the other side. If you're saying yes and there's a man who wants to have sex with you, even if you just met in his lift and you say, okay, then is it rape? Well, should that man, one, if you're a lift driver, be taking that person into an apartment that's a little frightening. Let's say, why, and then if you're taking that person into an apartment, why? Did that person not make it into the apartment herself? And if, she's, if she can't make it into the apartment on her own, can she really consent to sex? From the numbers of prosecutions and convictions in Minnesota involving alcohol, attorneys would answer yes. Brandon, Jennifer, and Mary Jo analyzed more than 1,000 cases during 2015 and 2016 to get the data. Here's Mary Jo on what they found. More than a third of the cases we reviewed involved a victim who was intoxicated at the time of the incident. More than a third. That's a lot. And then what is the rate of them being investigated, charged, prosecuted? So the way the police handle those cases tends to come out a little lower than a case with a sober victim, a little less likely to interview all the potential witnesses, a little less likely to interview a named suspect, But the real stark finding is in the outcomes. It's less likely to be sent to prosecutors, 
and much less likely to be charged and a conviction rate of just 5% compared to 9% if it's a sober victim. Their research shows often what began as a fun night out with friends consistently ended with an assault and very little support from law enforcement. So in one case, we spoke with a woman who is now 19, but this, so this happened last year. She was drinking with friends. She went back to a home to fall asleep um, and woke up to uh, a man sexually assaulting her. She called police, and instead of officers investigating that case, they wrote her a ticket for underage consumption. There was a case out of Brooklyn Park that stuck, that stuck out of my mind because the, the suspect texted the victim, and the officer did see apparently see this text that said, you know, I, I did this to you while you were passed out. And the officer told her, well, we're not going to send this to prosecutors because it's just a he said, she said case. Even when you had the text, you had it in writing? Yeah. That she was physically helpless. Well, it, again, <laughs> was she physically helpless under the definition of the law? I don't know. She has zero memory of it. You know, there was a St. Paul case where, and I spoke with the victim yesterday. She was, she was a student, 18 years old, you know, from a small, small town in Iowa. Um, first two months in the big city, she's in a hot tub drinking with friends at the student apartment building. She's drunk, but she's also tired, so she goes back to her, her apartment, goes to bed, and um, three men who she briefly met earlier that night follow her in, um, burglarize her, and rape her. And she calls police the next day, and she says the officers who responded basically just blamed her, um, made her feel like they, it was just a waste of their time. An investigator did talk to her a few days later, and then she said that the investigator asked her at the end of the interview, I, I bet you, you wish you were safer, that you had done more to be safer that night. Joanna had become one of those stories. She's arguably one of the hundreds, if not thousands, of victims in Minnesota who have been denied a chance at justice because alcohol was involved in her case. Finding out all in one moment, like from a paper that not only were they not going to arrest him, but they were not ever planning to do anything about it was um, really disappointing. Under Minnesota law, a victim is allowed to meet with the assistant county attorney to find out why they weren't going to prosecute. Joanna and her advocate met with Dave Pinto. He said that it was pretty clear that the Lyft driver knew he had done something wrong, that there wasn't consent. But due to how Minnesota's consent laws have always been interpreted, there wasn't enough room for them to prove that I was either physically helpless or mentally incapacitated. And because the Lyft driver says that I was drunk but coherent, that I walked up to my apartment with him, according to Minnesota law, would show that I was um, not physically helpless. But remember, the Lyft driver only said this in a text. He was never actually questioned by police. The bedsheets the responding officer confiscated were never tested, and there was never any follow-up investigation before the case was sent to the prosecutor who declined to file the charges. I called Roseville Police to address some concerns about how Joanna's case was handled. 
I spoke with Public Information Officer Lieutenant Erica Scheider and Police Chief Rick Mathwig. Joanna says that she felt judged by the responding officer. He asked how much she drank. He asked if she met anybody at the wedding. He asked if she usually slept naked. Is that part of a normal questioning? You know, not knowing, not having the transcript to, you know, see the whole line of, of what she reported, I, I can't answer that. Um, but it certainly is our policy and certainly um, our focus to not have our victims feel like they're being blamed or judged. We really take a strive to take a victim-centered approach and make sure our officers are not coming across as, you know, biased, blaming the victim or judging the victim. And so in this case, if she felt that, then that's, that's a failure on our part. And we did, we have reached out to her uh, through the story, finding out that she did have some concerns. And so we're hoping to meet with her, get a little bit more information and determine what we can do moving forward so that other victims don't have those same feelings after that interview with the officer. You know, we are a group of uh, people. Sometimes mistakes are made, but we try to work hard every day to be a, a better department. And I pride ourselves in being a learning organization. And we have done a lot of things, especially since I've been chief for the last eight years, to make sure we're trying to do a better job every day and learn from our missteps and learn from some better operations in other departments and other states and try to do a better job for the people of Roseville and the area and, and truly to take a victim-centered approach with these cases. Joanna confirms Lieutenant Scheider did reach out to her, and she plans to meet with the police to discuss how things could have been done differently. But I still had more questions for Lieutenant Scheider. At some point, the officer did get to question the suspect when he retrieved Joanna's phone. Now, he was a named suspect at that point. Why didn't the officer look in his car? Why didn't he question him? Why didn't he even let him know that he was a suspect? So the officer responded um, and did meet with the suspect. At that time, we did not have any detectives available. And it really is our policy um, and best practices to have somebody who's trained, who's got the expertise in these types of cases. Detective Baker then got him to admit to sexual contact in that night in some texts when she was using Joanna's phone. After he admitted in the text to Detective Baker uh, to the sexual contact, why didn't Roseville police go question him then? So the detective had some trouble trying to locate him. She did uh, do some follow-up. There was a couple different addresses um, that she believed he might be staying at, but unfortunately she was never able to locate him. She didn't, at that time, she didn't believe that we had enough uh, probable cause to make a custodial arrest of him. So we uh, continued to try to locate him through surveillance, um, tried to contact him. There was Apparently his phone was no longer in service. And then we also wrote a letter to him requesting that he contact us. Okay, that's, I mean, that's frustrating. I feel like, as a person who lives here, you know, as a citizen, I feel like we need to do a better job of that. So what happens? What if this guy did rape her? Then he's just free? Well, ultimately, the case then went to the county attorney's office with the information we had. Obviously, we'd prefer to have a statement from him. Um, but in this case, we presented the case for, or to the county attorney to review, and then that's when they declined the charges. And then it wasn't until a year after the incident that the prosecutor came back and said, we're not going to charge you. It seems like a long time for me. It also seems like a long time to allow this Lyft driver to be out there and not have contacted Lyft. Is that the normal time a, a case like this takes? You know, 
every case is a little bit different as far as how long it takes for investigations. Um, in this case uh, from 2016, I can tell you that um, as we've looked back, it, it took longer than it should. There should have been additional follow-up, um, especially with the victim, connecting with her sooner. Do you think, have, had you had a statement and had you guys worked harder to find him, you would have been able to present more evidence so the county attorney could prosecute him? You know, and I guess that probably would be a better question for the county attorney. So I asked him. I called Ramsey County Attorney John Choi. His office is the one that chose not to prosecute Joanna's alleged rapist. So, John. Yes. Had the police in Roseville presented a statement from the Lyft driver in Joanna's case or more physical evidence, would you have brought charges? We can't charge somebody with a crime unless the, um, the legal requirements are met. And we have a belief that we could prove uh, the elements of the statute beyond a reasonable doubt. But in this particular case, uh, what was lacking is information uh, any information uh, that would prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that the victim was physically helpless under the current state of the law. And they told me that you guys didn't request any more information to go forward with prosecution. You didn't request that they make sure they get a statement from him. The bed sheets were never tested in this case. I'm not, I'm not sure that much more could have been done on this case given the standard that exists under the law. Let's go back to the beginning. What does Minnesota law state about rape and consent when alcohol is involved? In, in the context of cases that involve lots of alcohol, etc., um, the way that Minnesota would criminalize that conduct, there are two ways that we would do it. First is there is a, if the victim was mentally incapacitated, and therefore could not give consent. And in that context, what it really requires is uh, the perpetrator introducing, unbeknownst to the victim, some sort of uh, drug or something like that. So in the context of alcohol, it doesn't work very well because um, if you're voluntarily drinking alcohol, that law is not going to apply, but it would be available, for instance, if I were to put like a pill in somebody's drink. Mm -hmm. The second way uh, that we would criminalize this conduct is there's a physically helpless standard, meaning that if the victim was physically helpless and therefore could not give consent, and you could prove that the perpetrator knew that, then we criminalize that conduct. Essentially, we, the prosecution, has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the victim was essentially passed out. I believe, from my perspective, you know, being involved in this work for a really long time, that we get lots of cases in this situation. It's immoral behavior, it's outrageous, and it should be criminalized, but we have a difficult time proving this particular charge, especially in the context when the victim doesn't really remember what happened. That standard of just not being able to, to communicate 
consent is what we have to prove, which essentially means that you have to be unconscious. Do you think that you interpret that a little too strictly? I spoke with some other prosecutors for ideas on how they interpret it, and they said, no, no, there are other ways. If you're vomiting, if you're stumbling, if you can't well, get sure, to your apartment we, on a, your own. A, absolutely. There's, but you would have to have a lot of that evidence. You would have to have a lot of information related to a video that shows the uh, uh, the the perpetrator like carrying uh, the victim, uh, you know, vomit, a whole host of circumstantial evidence that would n- need to be there. Um, but the reality is, in in the case file that we were presented, none of that is there. Do you think the Roseville police didn't do a good enough job? No, I think that they have done what they could, and also they have to recognize too. I think from the standpoint of uh, their work, I mean, a police investigator there um, has the, there's only one investigator, by the way, and, and she's one of the best in the state of Minnesota uh, doing this type of work, but she's got 300 cases. And so what she's trying to do is, you know, the, the responding officer does what he can, um, and then from there the the investigator has to try to get through her caseload of 300 cases. So, so I'm not trying to make excuses for her. I'm just telling you that that's the reality of kind of what we're faced with. The Star Tribune research says that only one in 20 sex assaults that involve drinking result in a conviction. Now, that's less than half the overall conviction rate for sex assaults. I mean, as a citizen, that's very troubling. How do you look at that as a prosecutor? Well, like I said, I think so much has needs to change. And I said that back in April of 2018, uh, before um, the Star Tribune series, and we've been looking at this from a, um, a system uh, approach by looking at past cases, and I think we have a really good idea of kind of what uh, are some of the hurdles uh, in this particular context in, ta- in terms of intoxication. Um, I think what really needs to happen in order for uh, better outcomes for victims across the state is that we need to add, in the state of Minnesota, the third option to be able to prove these cases. Um, And that would be to specifically criminalize uh, having sex with somebody who's too intoxicated to consent. Joanna agrees with Attorney Choi. The laws need to change. I don't feel like anyone can consent if they don't even remember what happened. I was making the responsible decision to have a ride home when I knew I would drink. The Lyft driver or anyone you would call for a sober ride home is in the situation of um, taking care of a vulnerable person and getting them safely home. If I needed a ride to get safely home, how was I able to consent? Even if the Lyft driver thought I was interested in him, he had a responsibility to get me home safely, and that doesn't include any sort of sexual contact. If you thought that I was interested, leave your number. See if I call you when I'm sober. The, the fact that I you know, needed to call for a ride home, to me, says that I, I definitely could not have consented. But because of the narrow way that laws have been interpreted, 
lives in Minnesota in cases like mine, I won't, I won't see any justice. Joanna did eventually contact Lyft, who said they take these matters very seriously. The Star Tribune received a statement from a Lyft spokeswoman that reads, The reports we received about this incident were truly horrifying. We deactivated the driver immediately after learning about these allegations and reached out to the passenger to extend our full support and assistance. From day one, the safety of the Lyft community has been our number one priority, and we continue to have absolutely zero tolerance for the behavior described. Joanna also contacted MINCASA, which is the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault, to get involved with changing legislation for victims like herself. Joanna's case is now closed, and she's now not only a mom and preschool teacher, she's also an advocate and a voice for those who were denied justice. I share my story as a survivor of rape because I should not have to be ashamed for what happened. He should feel ashamed. I am an adult. I should be able to go and drink if I want to drink and not worry that the person paid to bring me home safely will take advantage of that situation. I share because other survivors need to know that it isn't your fault and you shouldn't be afraid to say what happened. It shouldn't be a taboo subject. I was raped and it wasn't my fault. No matter what choices I made, I didn't choose that. On the next episode of Inside the News Investigating Rape, you'll hear from those on the inside, those who are investigating rape, police officers, detectives, and investigators. You'll hear why the system may be broken from the inside. Sex crimes has not historically been a priority within uh, the police department. Yeah, murders, shootings, aggravated assaults are the things that are more likely to um, be important not only to the community but also to the politicians. But for the command staff it was definitely uh, a dead-end job. The Inside the News Investigating Rape podcast is created by me, Jordana Green, Jared Goyette, and Dan Colhane with WCCO Radio. With reporting and audio credits from the Star Tribune's Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and Renee Jones-Schneider. Star Tribune editing credits are Abby Simons, Dave Hagee, Eric Wiffering, and Suki Dardarian. <laughs>